Okay, let's get this started. Hi, this is Talking American Studies with me, Verena Adamik, and me, Jasmin Künzler, at the University of Potsdam. So, we've just come back from the Obama Institute for Transnational American Studies at the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz. Um, let's shorten that to Obama Institute, University of Mainz, where we met with Dr. Nelis Havalisch, you might remember her from our last episode, and with a colleague and friend of hers, Rahab Jerry from the University of Trier. And Jerry is in Trier a PhD candidate at the International Research Training Group Mediating Diversity. So with the two of them, we got to talk about their common research interest, which is Black Canada. When I read up on Canadian studies, as I, of course, did in preparation for this interview, I stumbled upon the following statement, that the grand narrative of the Canadian nation is one that often seems to attain its most solid credentials as a counter-narrative to the US American one. And I think this aspect of the Canadian narrative sort of as defining itself in contrast to the USA, is also reflected in the way that Germans think of Canada. So in addition to being the land of, I don't know, maple syrup and moose and Margaret Atwood and ice hockey and curling and expansive forests, it is also not the America of loose gun control. It is not the world police. It is not the land of Trump. And it is not the land of slavery. Um, well, we'll come back to that. Consequently, if this Canadian narrative, this quote-unquote magic circle of mythological language, includes black people and slavery at all, it is in contrast to the USA. In this, Canada is the safe place for the people of African descent who fled slavery. And indeed, Canada essentially became the final destination of the Underground Railroad, the network that transported people to regions where slavery was illegal. In the 1850s, there was what historians call an exodus of black people to Canada, because in 1850, the USA passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which decreed that even in states where slavery was illegal, white Southerners could still reclaim their slaves. The result was that northern states were no longer safe for black people, even for people who were legally freed or had never been enslaved in the first place. Any person of African descent was a potential victim of being kidnapped by slave catchers and of being claimed as a slave. On the other hand, in Canada, slavery had been illegal since 1834. So abducting black people was likewise illegal, no matter what status they presumably had under US American law. Hence, Canada becoming the Canaan for black people. However, this is a story with a twist. Because that story of Canada beckoning black people via the Northern Star highlights only the situation in the USA. But the storyline ends with the fugitives' arrival in Canada. Yet the new arrivals, as well as those people already living in Canada, so to speak, the indigenous black population, face discrimination in Canada all the same. And yes, there were black Canadians that came not via the USA. The history of black Canadians reaches back further. A black person had set foot on Canadian soil before the first slaves arrived in what would become the USA. Black people arrived as skilled workers, as slaves, as soldiers, as loyalists, 
that is, loyal British subjects that had fought American revolutionaries, and as servants. These histories of migration and settlement reach so far back that the renowned Canadian author and critic George Eliot Clark proposed the term Africadian. Africadian merges African with Acadian, and in case you are not fluent in Canadian history, Acadians are famous French-Canadian settlers in the 17th and 18th century. So basically, Africadian is to point to the long existence and the many contributions of black people in Canada. Other stories of black Canadians are tied to the Caribbean or to emigration from Africa. And here I think we have to keep in mind that the British Commonwealth created waves and paths of migration to Canada that differ from those of the USA. So despite this rich history and Canada's image or self-image as the better side to the continent, black people in Canada, their history and their contributions are underrepresented in the great white north. And yes, that pun is intended. Even in concepts of the African diaspora in Europe and the Americas, which you know often use the term Black Atlantic, Canada doesn't play a large role. That is, scholarship on multiple levels also reflects this erasure of Black Canadians. This is something that Jerry pointed out to us, and she argues that this happens in Germany as well as in Canada. So what I get mostly is that there are Black people in Canada. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's mm -hmm. the first thing. And if yes, where are they? Mm -hmm. And then the follow-up is, are they from Africa or are they from the Caribbean? Mm -hmm. So in my case, or in my project, what I'm looking at um, is also this hypervisibility of Caribbean blacks in Canada who, in a way, have been able, you know, through their activism and also through their high numbers in Canada, have been able to sort of overshadow historical African-Canadian communities so that anyone who thinks about Canada automatically thinks about the Caribbean and not actually those, you know, black settlers who've been living there for a very long time. If you look at what has been done about Canada or Canadian studies in the German context, because I don't know what happens in other European countries, but especially in the German context, um, there's less and less about black people. So you'll never find conferences, seminars, or, uh, you know, um, famous um, African-Canadian um, authors um, coming over, that hadn't happened for a very long time, but now some of them are coming, like we had Judge Elliot Clark a few months mm -hmm. ago, I think, okay. and... Uh, um, Larry Hill was here last uh, this year for the Canadian Studies Conference. And Afua Cooper. Yeah. So, um, but before that, I never heard of that. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's very interesting that a Canadian Studies in a German context is more about... Um, Anglophones and Francophone Canada. And even there, although we have black people who are Anglophone and Francophone, they are never part of that narrative. So they are totally omitted um, in Canadian studies in Germany. But what I found out is not only in Germany, but even in Canada itself, that a lot of people actually don't know that Canada has had black peoples or people from African descent for a very long time. And it's um, a lot of people think maybe they came in the 1960s, you know, coming from the Caribbean or coming from continental Africa. So it's kind of uh, very interesting to see how the omission of black people within German Canadian studies and also within Canada studies itself in, in, in Canada. 
and somehow concomitant with that is the erasure of the history of slavery in Canada, which is one of the topics that Jerry and Neela discussed for us. Academic attention to the history of slavery in Canada is also still relatively young, and I could not help but be fascinated by this, and especially how exemplary it illustrates the interplay between knowledge and power. It was almost like it was out of a cultural studies textbook. One of the fascinating stories, I think, is how Marcel Trudel, the Quebec historian, wrote um, his history of black people in slavery in New France, six, what, 50 years ago, uh, whatever. And the book is very problematic for all different reasons, um, and we can talk about this later, but just the sheer amount of work that he put into unearthing sources is, I think, mm -hmm. something that we can still recognize today. And he would literally go from church to church, from parish to parish, and knock on bishops' doors and say, you know, I'm doing this work. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for sources, birth registrars, marriage registrars, death uh, certificates. And sometimes they would shut the door in his face and say, why do you want to do this work? It's going to make our nation look back bad or our country look bad or the province or whatever so it's always you know when you work on black people i think especially in canada is connected to questions of national identity reputation in quotation marks right so and that was you know whenever he wrote his book 60 50 60 years ago and it took 50 years for the book to be translated into english and even then when the translator first proposed the project he got responses of, well, why do you want to translate this kind of work? This is going to make us look bad. Like, I don't think we really need this, you know. So coming back to your question, you know, that the myth of the Canadian promised land is really, really hard to let go of. Mm -hmm. Trudel is very helpful for pointing out the absolute acceptance of slavery in society in New France. So this mm -hmm. is, we're talking 17th century, early 18th century, right? It's a completely accepted and common fact to have, to see slaves in what will become the province of Quebec. Yeah. And it is the church and politicians and wealthy merchants who are among the prime slaveholding class slave um, and slave owners, right? They buy slaves, they sell slaves, and they trade in slaves. Um, and so that is very, very important. And that that's why the book by Trudel caused a scandal when it came out because it said, listen, the church was actually, you know, participating and it was complicit and it was actively supporting mm -hmm. and upholding the system. So that's what he's very useful for. On the other hand, he's also sending the message that, but because there was no plantation slavery in Canada. It was mild. It was mild. It wasn't so bad. And he has these whole chapters where he says, oh, you know, slave owners, they had the babies baptized and they gave them their names and it was all caring and they were humane humane you know and he this is one of the core messages you know to defend canada to the end against the bad example of mm. the united states and this is why we have to and because today's book is is one of the earliest and single holistic views accounts of slavery we have to be so careful because until 30 years ago this is the book that you would find if you mm -hmm. wanted to know something about mm -hmm. this this is the message that you would get yeah. you know we have robin wings in 1970 who is also very problematic who's right? also very problematic right um and who tries to sort of amend uh, and expand uh, marcel trudel but he's also sending very problematic messages yeah mm -hmm. um and so again the question of white people writing black history yeah this is also something that um yeah we have to talk about when we talk about Black Canadian studies. Yeah. Here again, you can see how much the issues raised by Jerry and Nele connect to knowledge, power, 
and the archive. And in this case, I mean actual archives, like the ones where Jerry conducted her research. I had difficulties when I went to the archives. I didn't know where to start. And I would ask for boxes and the boxes would be written black. Normally, I think in, yeah. you know, in, in other studies or in other places, if I don't know if it was about the Irish in the US or the Irish yeah. maybe, or the Acadians, maybe mm -hmm. that would be a yeah. good example. Yeah. You would find boxes, you know, about the migration of the Acadians, where they went to, who they were. You know, everything is really, you know, in order and it's registered and you can find the material very easy. Mm -hmm. But for blacks, it's not the same. You know, you can just find a box is written black. And then you have to sort out the boxes yourself. Mm. So even the archive, how archival information is stored about black people also matters. And maybe that's why, or one of the reasons why um, a scholar goes to the, you know, to the archives and finds texts that haven't been, you know, dealt with or, you know, hidden texts that nobody knew even that they existed because maybe they just lumped together in a box called mm. black, which happened to me a lot of times. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I think this also, I mean, the question of the archive is always, like that of the canon, right, is always connected to power knowledge. Yeah, and knowledge production. Mm -hmm. And also because such archives are compiled, sorted or unsorted according to power structures, oral history plays an important role. I, I met a lot of people in the beginning. It was very difficult for me even to get into the communities. So I had to make friends. I had to go to the church, the black church. Of course, if you want to meet some people, you go to the black church. So I went to the black church, introduced myself, and then said what I wanted to do. And that's how I started getting, you know, contacts on who to interview and who not to interview. So, um... Who not to interview? Yes, you know, because... How do I say this? So there's a kind, you know, even if this as uh, African Canadians, there's a kind of dominant narrative that some people always say, mm -hmm. which as an outsider, you really never can tell if it's true or not mm -hmm. because you're coming from outside, mm -hmm. right? So there are some narratives which are really dominant. And in my case, for instance, on Africville, I had to be really to be careful because there are, there are some narratives that are very dominant. But of course, there are, other narratives that have just been hidden mm -hmm. and these are narratives that you find in people's homes mm -hmm. these are narratives that you can only know if you you know uh, meet with them and these are not narratives that you find in the books so jerry went and looked for these narratives and she found a variety of answers to the question of what it means to be black in canada so some of the case studies that i'm looking at for instance africville is a community that was built in canada mm -hmm. by the refugees who came into Canada in 1812 in Nova Scotia. So we, we have, you know, all these histories that are kind of tangled together. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think me and Nelil, I don't know if you'd agree, but <laughs> I found it very, uh, very difficult to sort of, you know, um, deal with the question of who is black in Canada. Because, you know, they are all, they all come from different places. Um, they have very different histories. So I started in Nova Scotia. So my Case studies are um, in Nova Scotia, Halifax. I'm looking at um, a community that was destroyed in the 1960s and, as I said, was built by black refugees coming into Canada in 1812. Then I'm looking at Little Burgundy, which is in Quebec, and which again is very complicated because, you know, the Quebec history and then also black people in Quebec, what that means. And then I'm also looking at Toronto, not very much the Underground Railroad, but more of the um, of the Caribbean history in Toronto mm -hmm. and the influence of that history um, uh, of what it means to be black. 
Um, so there are so many entangled histories that one really can't, you know, it's very complex. Black mm -hmm. Canada is very complex. Yeah. And I think that's why I call it Black Canada's. Because, you know, I'm only looking at one part of Canada and I'm sure that maybe in Alberta, mm -hmm. black people have a very different story and a very different narrative from people maybe living in, in Toronto. Neela, on the other hand, tackled one specific aspect of black Canadian histories, that of the myth of the Northern Star. For that, she looked at slave narratives from US American fugitives and the way that they portrayed their experiences in the supposed land of milk and honey. I looked at... Um Well, some people will call this the slave narrative uh, on Canadian soil, which in the book I say maybe is not a classic slave narrative, but it's sort of autobiographical writing by uh, black people who were born in the United States, lived in the United States, were perhaps born into slavery, and then uh, fled to Canada at some point in their lives. And then they talk about what it was like to live in Canada and connect to other black people there, what you know, building communities and, and making bonds with the community over there. So in the book, I decided to look on f to look at four distinct life narratives by four black male authors um, from the 1850s, um, Thomas Smallwood, Austin Stewart, uh, Richard Warren, and Samuel Ringold Ward. Some of them are more famous, like Ward and Stewart. Some of them are less famous, such as Smallwood, Some of them have never really been talked about, such as Warren. And they're similar in this way. They're, you know, single-authored, uh, male-author, 1850s. Um, they talk about life in the United States under slavery and then what it was like to escape from slavery, end up in Canada, and build a life there. What are the, apart from your own book, of course, what are some of the titles that you would recommend? Um, you would have to start, I think, with Wynne Zemerling's The Black Atlantic Reconsidered. Mm -hmm. Then you would have to go to Robin Winks's A History of Blacks in Canada from the 70s and read it with a grain of salt. Um, you can find fantastic material on contemporary Black Canada. George Eliot Clark is a must, is a must, because he's a writer and a scholar. Mm -hmm. Charmaine Nelson, who's an art historian, talks about Black Canada in art, is a must. Um, Afua Cooper is working her butt off at the University of Halifax, uh, you know, at Dalhousie. Um, so these are just some names. Afua Cooper, Renato Walcott, um, Elliot Clark, Charmaine Nelson. You know, there are so many now. I think before that it used to be a little bit difficult, but now, you know, we also have within Can Canada, black scholars are also working a lot on black Canada. So um, definitely that's one way you can find more information on Black Canada. Uh, but also on the archives, right? Like I was in the public um, archives of Nova Scotia mm -hmm. and um, they have a lot on um, a lot of historical material on uh, Blacks in Canada, you know, like how they came into Canada, how their first stop was in Nova Scotia and how they went to different parts of Canada. Um, you have uh, family records. Unfortunately, you don't always have the church records which would also be very important because that you know would uh, be the the institutions that black settlers built um but um you know you have uh, genealogies um there's a lot you can find now in um in the archives about black canada but then as i said before you have to sort it out yourself most of the material so i asked our interviews a final question which was 
if you could meet and talk to one person, dead or alive, and talk to them about your project, who would it be? Toni Morrison. Actually, there will be two. Toni Morrison and Angela Davis, <laughs> if I may add her. And I think Toni Morrison, for me, as a black woman living in Germany, was very important, especially when I read the book, The Bluest Eye. So that was, for me, a really eye-opener. And um, it also, you know, taught me a lot about what, you know, beauty standards are, you know, and how whiteness um, really functions and how, you know, we've learned how to absorb and reproduce whiteness sometimes even in our own black bodies. And also because um, from her, I learned that I did not have to write for a white audience, which for me is very important for my work. As I said before, I'm writing about black communities or African-Canadian communities in Canada, and they have to be able to identify themselves. And I also have to be able to, you know, read um, my own paper and say, this is actually what we as black people, even if I'm coming from a different context, we, what we as black people experience globally because we are dispersed everywhere. You know, black diaspora is everywhere. So um, that was for me very important to learn that... Um, I can write for black audiences, for a black audience, and I don't have to be apologetic about that. Because I had people asking me, you're black, so why are you writing about black Canada? And so going back to Toni Morrison, uh, you know, really gave me that motivation and, you know, self-empowerment to know that what I'm doing is right and it's not wrong. And Angela Davis, of course, because she's a hero. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the black power movement. Um, I wish I had been born in the 1960s, probably, you know, I would have been a groupie of Angela Davis and Malcolm X. But um, I think, uh, you know, you know, the messages that she's, she continues to send as a, you know, as a black woman, you know, how black people or how black women, you know, deal with questions of racism and um, how that still matters, you know, her book, Race, Class and Gender, you know, that was a, a very a huge influence um, also to my work and why I also decided to, to study history. So I think these two people, and there are many more I would mention, but these two people are like my people. <laughs> oh, thank you. That was really very personal, <laughs> very well reasoned. The answer. You obviously thought about that. <laughs> what about you? Um, I think I would... Um... I would go for the um, persons of the 19th century. I think if I got the chance, I would like to speak with uh, Marianne Shad Carey as um, a contemporary of my of the authors I look at. Um, I think she is just a very you know amazing and impressive and trailblazing um, character. Um, first black woman editor, a journalist, publisher um, in Canada. She has her newspaper, and she's also very. Um, I would call her radical um, f first in so many things, and I I don't think she she you know, she let anybody talk her down really, and it's, it's a very impressive you know for for women scholars I think that can be an exa an exemplary figure. She would never take anything from anybody. She would get into fights if she thought her opinion was what it was, and um, also against men. You know, we're talking 19th century, so this is all very new and very um, amazing, and I think that she would be um, my fiercest critic in the work, and I think that would make a lot of sense to speak with her. And um, if I caught, could talk to one of my authors, it would be Thomas Smallwood, who for similar reasons is a very radical, very fascinating character. He's maybe not 
uncontroversial, but um, his when I read his narrative for the first time, I was so caught up in his writing. You know, it's just this very straightforward, very radical, very loud, very um, urgent call as an appeal as David Walker all over again, you know, but in a context above the, you know, across the border. And I, I think that if I talk to him about his project, he would like demand to read every single line, you know, he's like, he'd probably be like, I'm not having, you know, anybody else like portray me. I'm, I'm, I'm my best painter so I'm you know I'm doing my self-portrait here so give me everything to read and I you know I'll give you extended feedback on that so I think that would also be amazing I think that leaves nothing more for us to say except to express our gratefulness to Dr. Nila Savalish and Rahab Jerry who were the most generous host you could imagine and to those who made this interview possible so I would like to thank my mother Jennifer Kramer for looking after my kids and my neighbor Frau Koch for accepting to look after my daughter today so that I can do the interview. Thank you. We'd also all like to thank them. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And special thanks again to the University of Potsdam for sponsoring this episode as part of the Initiative Innovative Lehre. And to the staff of our RVZ for counseling us on our sound equipment. Finally, we'd like to thank Anja Suhymnes and the Chair for American Studies in Potsdam, Nicole Waller, for their continuing support. If you want to look at the list of works cited, because we have one, or if you want to find out more about our speakers, check out talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. And Talking American Studies is super active on social media, so we are on Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram. And if you are more old-fashioned, we can also be reached via email under talkingamericanstudies at posteo.net. We don't have a fax machine yet. Yet. You can follow the podcast and share it via Spotify, iTunes, or the current homepage talkingamericanstudies.buzzsprout.com. So check out the other episodes. We both. We both. Yes. We both hope you enjoyed this episode and that you will listen in again. Bye. Bye. This is the final boarding call for flight AC-772 to Vancouver. Is that something you always wanted to say? Yes, it's always, you know, my, my second career prospect, if it doesn't work out with the tenured uh, professorship, is I'm just going to record things. I'm going to go to the airport and be the voice for everything. <laughs>